Welcome to DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at dtcpod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG organic creative. Use the code DTCPOD10 for 10% off your next content purchase. What's up, DTC Pod? Today we're joined by Anders and Andy from Superfiliate. So guys, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and the, the product you guys are building? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, prior to starting Superfiliate, I had spent the last seven years doing early stage software investing and a little bit actually on the D2C brand side. Um, first investment I ever made was actually in a direct consumer brand called Somersault and then started to spend a lot more time on the e-commerce stack, everything from returns, reverse logistics, secondary marketplaces, uh, moved out to Los Angeles and uh, moved into a house with a bunch of strangers. And Anders happened to be one of those strangers. And he was our uh, lifelong entrepreneur and, you know, asked me to start this company with him and, you know, converted me over to the founder side. Amazing. Yeah. Andy and I have tied our fates together, I guess. A little background on me. I spent the last eight years on the software side. So I had co-founded a music technology company. That's like back in the day when those APIs were really open, like Spotify had an open API, if you remember that. Uh, and then four years later, started a company called Darkroom. By the way, it's a really awful idea to try to bootstrap a music technology company. It's just super, super difficult. Uh, and then four years later, started that company, Darkroom, with my co-founder, Theo, there. And long story short, that business is essentially an API uh, for fine art print providers that helps photographers and graphic designers sell their physical work and bootstrap that business, too. You know, plenty of plenty of times where I was like, hey, we bootstrap, rah, rah, I'm glad we didn't bring in money. And then other times after meeting Andy, I was like, man, I wish we had brought in some money um, and scaled up that business and started investing in different CPG companies, honestly, around the rah, rah train of good for you CPG products. And then started to see, honestly, started to see a lot of the contracts they were receiving on the word of mouth side, right? Started to see, and word of mouth, by the way, is a really, really big category. There's all the subcategories that exist within that. There's referral loyalty, there's ambassador, there's affiliate, there's influencer. And fundamentally, we really felt like the softwares really were linking code CRMs. They helped you manage discounts. They helped you manage codes. And what we wanted to do is basically automate the creation of personalized storefronts for your best customers and creators, where if I followed you, Blaine, or you, Raymond, like I click on that link. Right now, I go to a PDP or a shop all page. You're gone. You could have sold me any product in the world, and I would be there because of you. And marketers are building co-branded landing pages. They just haven't been able to build that front-end infrastructure to match the scale of their word of mouth. So yeah, it's a little background on myself. And then there's a really, really quick pitch on, on Superfiliate, but we can kind of take it, take it anywhere. Yeah. So can you, um, can one of you guys walk us through the workflow of how a brand, I just want the audience to sort of get context of, of how this experience really works. So who is in charge of creating this custom landing page? Does Superfiliate do that? Does the brand, does the creator, um, how does the workflow work? So I'll jump in and then Andy, maybe tag on with other stuff because there's so many learnings. I feel like every merchant we talk to. So 
our merchant will come to us and we'll kind of diagnose where they need the most help in word of mouth. We can engage in all those subcategories. They may have a referral loyalty contract that's not up for six months, but they have 300 affiliates or influencers they want to work with. And so we'll engage with them and kind of like wherever their needs are on the word of mouth side. When it comes to the actual storefront, we serve the merchant here, right? We don't serve the influencer. It's not multi-brand and it's not like requiring the influencer to choose a bunch of products. The merchant and ourselves are actually building the landing page. So we have a landing page builder within our app. We'll end up building that landing page for them when they come on the app. Well, we plan on doing that for the first X thousands of merchants we work with because they're used to going to an agency and paying five to 10 grand, waiting two to six weeks for a landing page. And then all of a sudden, you know, they start working with super affiliate and there's a landing page in the app. And then all of a sudden they add 300 super affiliates and there's 300 personalized storefronts that are built for their customers. And their customers can optionally go in and, you know, change the hero content to be a piece of their UGC or curate their favorite products they want on the store. So little work is actually on the customer and creator side, just for this reason of, Hey, we're all kind of, we have so much going on. Creators and customers do too. You don't want to break any of their current workflow and just give them the same workflow of sharing the link. Uh, but Andy, anything you would add there too? Because I feel like every pitch we're, we're evolving that narrative uh, for, for the needs of the customers. No, I think ultimately it's just, you know, to Andre's point, like, you know, we're taking on that with the merchant, but we just want to enable these people to share like a new fresh experience, you know, to Andre's point earlier on the, the CRM side, it's like people are used to just getting these you know, cold links that just send you to a homepage. And we just want to enable them with the brand's best content that they've already spent a bunch of money on. We want to enable people to put the content that they're making for a brand on this site. And, and you know, ultimately also drive attribution and rewards for that. You know, we want to bring them into the reward structure of sharing a brand and, and what it means to drive revenue for these brands and make sure that they're participating in that beyond just making the piece of content or what they're getting you know, paid for by the brand. Yeah, I love it because you're you're removing all the friction points of getting someone's attention when they're the most intrigued. And that is the first time that they get to interact with the brand and then according to who referred them to the brand. But I also want to take a step back to you know, th there was a lot to unpack in terms of like your background and and how you got to work together. So, you know, first things first, you both met in this house and decided to start a company. Like, you know, a lot of people know how hard it is to find a co-founder. And then, you know, you both came from these opposite worlds to a perfect combination. What was the process like from when you guys met to actually, you know, coming together to super affiliate? If I remember right, I can I can kick that off, Anders. But there was a time, you know, I had moved in. Anders was friends with everybody else in the house. And I was kind of like the random guy filling a space. But there was this crazy guy that was down there at like 3 a.m., you know, brainstorming every night. I was actually working East Coast hours. And sometimes we would overlap. I'd be waking up. He'd be going to bed. Um, but he was, you know, always the idea guy and just had come from that background of you know, building companies, starting from scratch, being lean, being scrappy. Um, and ultimately, you know, he came to me and was like, hey, I think we could be great partners on this. You know, you, you know, the investment side, you know, the business development side, you know, like the contextual market as a whole. Now, like, how can we pair that with my experience, like building great software and enabling creators like, you know, Anders was a dark room and, you know, the story sounds great in retrospect of like, we just went zero to like right where we are today. 
And really it was just like getting in the gauntlet and like building and like talking to customers and just like developing our relationship, frankly, alongside developing the company itself. And, you know, ultimately that led to like a very complimentary co-founder dynamic that I think has been super helpful. And you see that flourish, like as we go into certain phases of the company, you know, there's the building phases and there's the fundraising phases. And it's kind of like, we're kind of like picking up where the other one leaves off, but uh, you know, ultimately is like enabled, been a really unique opportunity to like build a friendship and a company in, in parallel. Yeah. I mean, Blaine, I know, you know, you, you have more experience on the VC front as well. And we all do here, but you know, getting someone who has seven years of experience in VC and say, come start a company. Uh, it, it was a big leap definitely on, on your end. I mean, how, you know, what is it? What is, are you still actively in VC? What is, how did you make that decision? And, and, and what conclusions did you come to, to say, all right, I'm, I'm going to make the leap. Like, what was the evaluation process for that? You know, you know, the risk that is, is on the other side. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, for, for me, it was like, look, in investing, I found something that I love, which is helping founders build their dreams and the products and like change markets that they have a unique perspective on. But like, in seven years of doing that, there was like one thing that was always missing. And it was that empathy of like being able to look across the table and say, I've been there. You know, I know what that challenge is like. And like, this is how I handled it. Maybe that's not how you should handle it. But from my personal experience, this is what I would do. And I just like noticed that the investors that I looked up to were the ones that had been there and had done that, whether that be like my direct mentors at some of the firms that I worked at or, you know, the VCs that you see that are out there on Twitter and things like that. So many of them share that common background of like been there, done that and have that empathy with the founder. So I knew it was always going to be something that I wanted to do. However, I also knew that I probably wasn't like the idea guy to your point, Ramon, of like drop everything and just like go into the abyss. So like I was kind of passively waiting for that opportunity. And it was just like, pure dumb luck that like I encountered a founder that was like brought all of the like idea and scrappiness that I was lacking. Um, and it was really awesome and like getting it off the ground because we were able to just go so much faster with that initial idea because we were able to go to some of like the network that I had built in the, you know, throughout the investing career. And, you know, ultimately like, I think that time when it was like, you got to go or no go, it was a pretty easy choice to say like, you know, probably not going to regret making that jump, even if, you know, everything hits the fan and, and we, you know, fall flat, like we'll pick ourselves up and, and keep going. So that was ultimately the experience. And then, you know, to the point, to the initial question of like, am I still doing that now? Um, I do serve as a venture partner at Revolution's Rise of the Rest Fund. And, but largely that's just, you know, maintaining founder relationships that I had built in the past and, and frankly, weighing in on the e-com landscape for them. It's, you know, Revolution is very active in the e-commerce world with some big investments like big commerce, sway pay, um, companies that are you know, very active in the space and just helping them evaluate and grow those businesses. So, you know, get to keep one foot in and like keep that, you know, keep the hat on a little bit, but ultimately spend most of my time building super affiliate with Anders. Andy, also coming from the VC side, it's really interesting because I feel like in VC, you almost have like 
ADD where you're like looking at all these different companies, all these deals, like everything's coming at you so fast. And then when you're just like building at one company, it's like the totally opposite thing. Right. So what, what was that transition like? And like, how do you think about that going from like looking at a million companies to like really going all the way into the day-to-day at, at your own? I think Anders would probably say that that ADD might still exist um, based on the barrage of Slack messages that, that I'm sending on a daily basis. But I think it was really around, you know, taking a similar skill set of like looking at a lot of different things and consolidating them down, but just like zooming one level lower and saying like, okay, now e-commerce is your world. Like your world is not like SaaS as a category your world is e-commerce, but there's still a bunch of categories within that. And I think like that's one of the things that Anders and I you know, really have tried to do a good job of building this company is like really understanding the context with which we're building the company and like getting in the weeds, but also understanding that like there are fundamental like business building things that need to be done regardless of the category and being able to make sure that we're like on that trajectory that like an investor is going to want to see, you know, because you can feel like you're building the best thing in the world for a small niche, but like ultimately you have to be looking at it from a bigger picture to build a VC scale company where it makes sense to like raise significant capital along the way. So I think like it was definitely a transition in the sense of like narrowing that scope a little bit but then being able to be so present on like the sales and business development side of Superfilia, it was kind of like taking a hat and applying it in a different context. And yeah, you know, I think that's a huge part of our approach to building the company is, you know, know everybody, help who you can, connect people in the ecosystem, and just ultimately like get a full understanding of what's going on in the market around you. So another thing that I think that's really interesting about like the state of VC versus like founder and company today is like, I feel like before it was like everyone could build the, like there was all this opportunity, right? For like really big venture backable businesses. And then obviously then you start getting like the long tail of software where everyone's like niching down, building some stuff that's like super, super niche. A lot of times I think companies are getting venture funding, especially in the last couple of years where maybe it didn't really warrant venture funding, but they're still like getting VC sort of deals. I think what's interesting about the space you guys are building in affiliate is like, if everything checks out the way you guys think it could, and you're able to build that like affiliate layer of commerce, like that definitely is a venture backable thing. But I just love your, your guys's take in general around bootstrapping versus VC. Like when should you think about saying like, oh, my business is a venture backable business versus, oh, I should look at different sorts of, of financing, not just because that's the, like, because you're going to be wasting your time or maybe spinning your wheels for VC, but also if you build the wrong business and you take VC funding, you can like screw yourself down the line uh, when it comes to like exiting. If your business just doesn't have like that high ceiling potential, like you, you as a founder could get wiped out by taking VC funding when you're business like from the get-go shouldn't have been a, a VC business to begin with. So like, how, how do you think about that as a founder making those sort of decisions? And how did you come across and, and ultimately make the decision that what you guys are building with Superfiliate is like actually a, a really big opportunity to go after? 100%. I, I, I think it's a great question and like extremely topical, like given the market conditions that we're in right now. And like, we're seeing a lot of businesses that are in a tough spot to your exact point, Blaine. You know, I think it's something that a lot of founders are going to be in a tough spot because of that position. And, you know, we thought about it from the start of saying, Hey, let's raise enough to get us off the ground. 
because we know that you know in this overall broad affiliate space even if we're just within the shopify ecosystem you know there's enough market out there for us to build a really nice business here however let's raise in like a milestones based fashion where you know a round is a means to you know, de-risking a next milestone or a next phase of the business and raise capital according to our needs at a, you know, at a given moment in time. So our initial round was, you know, we raised a million dollars and that was enough for us to stand up a solid engineering team, a solid product team, solid design team, get a product to market, start to get a feel for like customer propensity to pay, things like that, and put us into a position where we feel like we have the ability to forecast this business six months down the road. 12 months down the road, two years down the road without pricing yourself out of, you know, opportunistic acquisition if it was to come or subsequent rounds of financing and being able to just like keep showing that incremental progress along the journey. And, you know, I think in the market of the last few years, founders got put in a tough position because if you weren't going to do it, your founders were going to do it. And you know, by it, I mean, raise a bunch of money, right? And when I say your competitors are going to do it. So when your competitors raise 10, you think, well, I better raise 10 or 15 because they're going to be going fast. And I think now you're about to see, you know, a next wave of companies who are thoughtful in fundraising or even just raised at a later stage in the market where that capital was not available. And those founders are going to be able to build like more capital efficient businesses that put themselves in a great position to like, shine as a wave of companies maybe either fold or get rolled into other entities because they were weighed down with the capital that they had raised at like you know frankly frothy valuations that that was based on best case ex, you know best case scenarios to be able to get to that next milestone so so you you mentioned one of the things for example is all right the outcomes are either the company shuts down the company reaches like, you know, say IPO level or, or, or a big exit outcome. And you mentioned that some founders might do a race where they decrease the chance of like an opportunistic exit. Um, can you like dive into that, into how a founder can like put themselves in a corner where now they missed their opportunistic exit? And like, how do you advise founders to keep that option open as they think of a strategic round. Um, because like you said, market conditions, you don't know, we, we, you know, we have the vision on the company, but there are external factors that don't allow, we, we don't get to time what is going to be the ultimate outcome and when. So I think that that would be awesome to dive into. Absolutely. And I, I think when it comes to that, you know, it's about keeping that optionality open and making sure that when you raise money, you're giving yourself a path to default alive. And by default alive, I mean controlling your own destiny and like raising enough money to where you feel like you can get the business to a point where you're not reliant on capital, but future capital rounds will be an acceleration of what you're already doing. And I think, you know, there will be some businesses where that's not the path to go. They need to go big, they need to go fast. However, I think that's a vast minority of businesses. I think like, you know, thinking about raising enough capital to get to that next point of de-risk and I think, you know, old wisdom that I was given at one point in my life is when you're thinking about raising, you should be talking to those potential strategic acquirers, not even necessarily if you're interested in the acquisition, but it's just a good exercise to get to know, you know, what's going on at that, you know, phase of company that's sitting above and looking down on the market that you're trying to grow up into. And I think there's some great perspective there, but, 
you know, I, I think really what it comes down to is capital efficiency. It's, you know, making sure that you're getting the most out of that next dollar, you know, making a hire that, you know, has, you know, a seat to sit in and a job to be done and not hiring because, you know, you have the amount of money in the bank to do it, but being really thoughtful about that. And, and, and I think too, you know, there's, there's different groups to raise from at different stages in the company who are going to have different expectations on what that outcome is. You know, if you take money from a $3 billion fund, you know, a hundred million dollar exit that they own 10% of does not move the needle. However, if you take money from a $20 million fund that they own 10% of, and it sells for a hundred million, you've returned half the fund. You know, they might, they're probably going to be pretty happy with that outcome. So I think there's also a component of thinking about who you take money from at what phase of the company, whenever you do have that line of sight of like, what is that next milestone and how that will play into like the psychology of that investor or like the return ex expectations of that investor. I love it. And, and Anders, um, you know, I think you, you guys make a great duo because there's, there's all this advice coming out now on like what you should do with a company. And Anders, I, I, I can relate. I, I've built a bootstrap business before and the advice going around is like, you know, try, try to be cash flow positive and, and all these things that people that have bootstrapped say, well, isn't this how a business should have been ran in the first place? But certain market conditions affect that. And so, Anders, what has been like the experience like of, you know, running two bootstrap businesses to then running a, a VC bag company? What are the pros and cons you've experienced so far from from each of that each of those? There's like so many scars, um, even on both sides, honestly. I think on the bootstrap side, there's also this like over glorification of both, you know, because there's these people that have gone down both paths and they validate both paths. And they're like, you should do this and you should do that. You should do whatever's right for your business at that time. And for us, particularly on the darkroom side, you know, Theo, my co-founder and I there, we realized that the venture scale of that business wouldn't be realized until much later when we had product market fit. There were times where we could have poured money on the business where, you know, potentially we should have. And obviously it's it's so easy to say that in hindsight. I think the biggest li limitations were hiring and scaling. When something's working, you're always limited by your revenue coming in the door rather than, hey, we know this is working. We want to move on product, particularly in software, right? We knew we wanted to move. We, obviously, this is the D2C pod, and there's a bunch of businesses here that are on the CPG side that are saying, hey, should we fundraise because this purchase order is massive? There's all these different type of dynamics that come in. And of course, there's there's cash advances. We really relied on cash advances, um, and the company still does. You know, it's like, I think that's a really fun way to grow the business. You see Stripe Capital, PayPal Capital, that's, you know, Wayfire. There's all these types of options that are there for alternate funding. Those are really fun to use. And then on the venture side, I think there's this pro that you get to hire those people that you want to, but there's also the con that there's so much uncertainty in that, right? You take on a certain amount of burn and risk. We've been super, super lean pretty much throughout all the businesses I've run. We've just been very capital efficient, like Andy brought up before, but I, you know, looking at this now, it's hard to, unless it's an absolute cash machine for me to tell someone to bootstrap, you know, there's so much glorification around bootstrapping, but sometimes you do find those businesses. Wow. They're so cash efficient. They're so, uh, cash heavy and profitable. Don't, don't fundraise or find an alternative way to, to fundraise. But, you know, to say, to not have an angel family friend round to get you off the, the ground and get you to product market fit, I would usually lean towards raising a small amount. That's very reasonable and then taking it from there. But 
always depends on the business market timing and of course all all the rest from the founder's perspective and i think it's also great that you guys have had both um perspectives right there's like a lot of founders who can only build a venture scale business and maybe some who will only think in like the bootstrap way so just being able to probably temper each other and understand like wait a minute maybe we can do this in a more capital efficient way like it, like i'm used to building it this way and now we have capital that doesn't mean i'm going to flush it down the toilet it just means it's going to be an accelerant to the business instead of you know something that's just you know there and you're like oh we burned through all this money and we don't have anything to show for it so I think having both of those sides is probably a really, really good thing to have as a founding team. Yeah, it's really funny. We were we were just looking at the uh, financial model and the forecast right before we jumped on here. And you kind of heard Anders nice different perspectives there when you're looking at like when to bring on what higher. I think like, you know, with the venture back mind, it's like I'm the one month too early and he's like the one month too late type, you, you know, so maybe if we just meet in the middle on all of those, well, timing will be just perfect. I, I will say there's one thing that it's kind of this dark side of this conversation that I think is worth bringing up, which is where are the exits, right? Look at the exit potential of the company and look at who's buying, right? I think the the number one thing you can do is to align on who's buying these companies. Are we going to go public one day? Is that the dream and the vision? Or are we a strategic investment or strategic acquisition? Because, and this is really what's played, I think, a lot of the CPG world. A lot of businesses got overcapitalized and a lot of investors were, you know, raising allowing their founders to raise at crazy multiples that now, you know, it's overpriced for them to bring on an employee and the employees aren't going to make any money even on a, on an acquisition, unless it's an amazing acquisition. And there's just not enough people evaluating the acquisition market. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in 2023 and 24 in the acquisition landscape. And that should also be something that new founders are looking at and saying, hey, what's the corporate development environment look like for us building this company? Who's a dream acquirer? You know, put that on a board and work backwards. I think a lot of a lot of the exit potential gets overlooked and people go, how big of a business do you want to build? Do you want to IPO? And rather than, hey, I want to be a part of this company's strategic vision and mission and, and working backwards from there. Yeah. And I think the thing about that that's really interesting is a lot of founders really think in, in really binary terms, right? Like we are going to, like, it's the first day of the business. They haven't even built anything. And it's like, this is going to be the biggest thing ever and we're going to IPO it, right? And like outcomes aren't always so binary. So just at least thinking and really being honest with yourself and knowing all of the options on the table from the get-go, I think is a really smart way to think about sizing up your market, your opportunities, and just being realistic because, you know, you want to have a plan A, but you also want to have a pl reasonable plan B, C, D, whatever it is. Um, okay, so moving away from fundraising uh, for a second, one one thing that I wanted to get into with you guys is just getting painting maybe a, a little bit better of a landscape for, um, you know, a store owner who's trying to get a real pulse on the affiliate and creator sort of space that you guys sit, right? So imagine that we're starting, uh, imagine like I'm a brand owner, I own a brand and I'm starting out probably, you know, maybe I've created a couple Facebook ads and maybe I have like some followers and some customers and maybe I'm starting to see some like UGC come in that like, I've got tagged on posts or whatever else. So how do you, why don't you just paint us a picture of like that affiliate landscape where you guys come in and, and where you sit so brands can start to like understand how to like leverage their community and their creators who are all already like loving their products to like accelerate their, their growth. So we will always engage with the brand where we feel like we've talked to the founders, we've talked to their head of marketing, we've understood the community because the 
word of mouth strategy for a sexual wellness company versus a functional mushroom company is very different, you know, and there's, there's very different avenues where those will be effective and ineffective on social and really thinking about what word of mouth is. You have to go to the core of what the psychological motivators are of those individual groups, right? If you take a kind of simple approach of creators and saying, because creators are still a really broad category, but let's talk about like influencers and podcasters and newsletters. You have to ask, what are their incentives, right? I think the first wave of influencer marketing has come and gone. And that has really been like, hey, pay us X thousands of dollars for this post. And it's brand marketing rather than performance marketing. Not because, by the way, you don't want it to be performance marketing, but because you couldn't get a you know positive one ROAS and ROI on that spend. And I think that was kind of this really dark side of influencer and creator that a lot of brands are, are waking up to. So we really, really push people to thinking about things on a performance basis. And that's across referral loyalty, that's across affiliate and cross influencer. If they have an awesome workflow for creators, we'll say, hey, what are, what are they like? What motivates those customers? Would they get excited about an experience like this? And the way that we have seen brands present that to their customers and creators is, hey, Blaine, we've made you a co-branded landing page. And the people that get excited about that are the people you should be enrolling in this program. There's going to be plenty of people that are going to be indifferent. They're going to be like, oh, just give me my code, give me my link. But the people that really love the brand and have that brand affinity and are going to be excited are the ones that we really want to target. And we usually try to start with one program. We definitely are a consolidation play, right? People will come to us and run multiple pillars of their word of mouth strategy, which I think is nice because there's three plus apps on average brands are using for word of mouth. But in the end of the day, so much of those tools do the same thing, but we'll always start with one and then we'll try to fully own it. We'll say, how do we recruit these people? We have a bunch of integrations with Klaviyo, Postscript, Attentive, all the subscription providers. How do we recruit people in top of funnel? How do we activate them? How do we educate them? And how do we allow you to double down on the people that are working? It is almost always the Pareto principle. The top 20%, even the top 5% of people, the customers and creators are going to be driving the vast majority of that revenue. And the problem is that you can't find out who those are until you filter through all the rest. And so there's really that filtration process that has to happen, but that's after activating and educating those customers and creators. Got it. And, and why don't you talk to us a little bit more about um, kind of what you were mentioning on the importance of ha like each creator having their own version of it, right? Like I know in the, like when a brand is having like a really successful activation with an influencer, they'll like whitelist their account. So there's like real overlap and synergy between it. Like the brand is happy to show that this creator is like really working with us and that sort of thing. So you guys are basically able to like take that and scale it out. So each one of the creators has their own um, storefront almost, right. That they're selling to. So like beyond that, then what happens? Like, I know you mentioned about the importance of having different integrations into the different parts of the system. Like what else are you guys able to, to provide to, to the brand once, um, you know, customers start to like see these pages from their cr favorite creators and start to like convert or make their way onto the site. Totally. I think it's worth bringing up social commerce real quickly because it's a very buzzy term that so many people bring up and then when we actually look at what the current state of social commerce is it's really affiliate links that are next to a tiktok facebook or instagram post that drive you to a pdp or a shop all page and our pitch is that every single affiliate link and discount code that exists out there should drive you to a micro commerce experience that's fully contextualized to the traffic source, right? So, hey, I follow you playing on TikTok, you're promoting X, Y, or Z company. Let's just say it's an apparel company. 
I go usually go to a shop all page with 700 products. Now I'm going to Blaine Times Brand Store where you've curated the top 10 picks. I'm there because of you. I'm really interested in what your review is of the product above all else. And of course, integrations are super important, right? For the recruitment side, for building a landing page experience, these are full landing pages, right? We want someone to be able to come to us and say, hey, we have six web properties. And all of a sudden with this program, we're now going to have 6,000 micro web experiences that we'll be hosting through you all and that it scales up with the size of our word of mouth program. So we view that I guess this is probably worth mentioning. We think that brands that are going to be really successful in 2023 are the ones that create a feedback loop between their customers and creators, the content they're making, and the front-end experiences they can offer them. And brands aren't really equipped to offer them those front-end experiences, right? If we can offer the same caliber of experience that they get with an agency building a singular landing page, but have that scale to the size of their word-of-mouth program, you start to see how this world transitions in the social commerce side from, hey, this link to a PDP for this link to a super, super contextualized experience um, that's super tailored to that individual. No, that makes a ton of sense. And I just think the way in which commerce and e-commerce just continues to evolve is it's not like one size fits all. I think there's going to be a massive portion of commerce that can happen, like you were saying, where the lens at which the consumer thinks about making the purchase decision is through that of the creator that they're following. So when they get to that page and they're they're already shopping in that, like, format, then they want to be able to go through the format of like seeing the e-commerce store through the lens of that creator where, and, but by the same time, that doesn't discount the fact that there's going to be also the other native shopping experiences where you're going to come to just like the sites page, or maybe you find them through Google, or maybe you find them through all these different places. So I think it's just exciting to understand that as the landscape matures, there's all these different ways that traffic gets driven to the site. And you, what you guys are really focusing on is you're saying, hey, there's a ton of traffic that's actually getting driven to these brands through creators, influencers, et cetera. Let's focus on providing the, uh, the link between that format of commerce and when they actually get to the site. So it's not just, okay, the creator drove them to the site and now you know it's just a singular storefront, right? Totally. I think there's this... There's this first wave that happened, and I'll, I'll ping it over to you because I know we we both see this so often. In the first wave of creator commerce, it was like, hey, let's put a, a buy button right away, right? Let's like, like put it right next to the creator rather than let's build them an experience that allows the customer to go from the full journey of discovery to conversion. And jamming a commerce experience right next to an entertainment experience is a really interesting problem. Because you want to kind of blend the worlds of entertainment and education to ultimately drive the conversion. And that is really the things that kind of play in conflict. And you're really trying to marry them there. So we're really trying to allow those experiences to marry the entertainment and education component. And to jump in there, I think there's there's so much we've learned around the the commerce experience from that. that yeah. And I, and I think like you know, some of the recent announcements from Instagram, for example, regarding Instagram shopping and their you know decision to deprioritize that shopping tab, I think comes to that point that you know Anders just mentioned there. It's like, why are people coming to Instagram? It is not you know to shop; it is to be entertained. Now there are ads you know interjected in that entertainment experience, but it's not happening in that same property. And like when you wink out to this page, you're keeping that creator in the loop of that experience. However, you're also giving that brand the opportunity to tell the brand story. Why should I buy? You know, how do I buy and like execute it there? So you're kind of creating that interstitial experience and it plays to 
explain to your point, that paradigm shift of, you know, me as a brand owner, I used to see 90, 95% of my traffic come from putting dollars into, you know, Meta and Google. So I knew where they were coming from and therefore I could optimize my experience for that singular traffic source. However, now that traffic's hitting me from 10 different places or a hundred different places. And it's like, how can I now optimize a commerce experience for all of those sources? And it's not going to be, you know, personalization on the homepage where I like AB test, you know, changing a button here or there. It's actually going to be a creator saying like, here's my experience with the brand. This is why I use it. This is why you should use it. Also click below and you can buy. And it's just, you know, close the loop really quickly there. One question, one follow-up question that I had for you guys and how, how you guys think about it with, um, I know Meta, like stopping their, their uh, pulling their commerce section. Why do you think that, like, I think you, I think we know why it didn't happen. It wasn't like taking off and it was probably just like taking more resources, but where do we go from here, right? Like commerce, that seems like a pretty big initiative for them. Are they gonna like remix it and try a different way to like, phase it in? Are they going to take more of an affiliate route? Like where, where do they fall in that commerce conversation? Because they clearly own the platform where all the content is being created on the Instagram side of things. Right. So like where, where do things go from here? Totally. So on our side, I would recommend anyone who's listening at this moment to pull open their Instagram and click on their Instagram stories and start swiping to the right and see how many of your friends stories you can get to without getting an ad. I guarantee you, you can't get more than five. Let I, I rarely get more than three. I got one. I just got yeah, one. One. Okay, keep going. And you'll probably get a couple of doubles. So if you think about what that means, there's this saturation that's happening with their ability to interject ads into that experience, right? They're pushing video really hard. I don't think their removal of shop is actually this like massive unwind of their shopping and commerce strategy. I actually just think that they are changing the way in which they are doing commerce they are rather than separating the two and making it seem like they are two separate things they're trying to go more of their stories route which is how can we embed more of the commerce experience into an organic post and candidly they should be going the way that we're going they should be thinking heavily on the merchant side and leaning into these top merchants in the same way and i think this is kind of the least talked about thing in e-commerce people talk about scaling up software companies so much of software is service-based in the e-commerce space. You look at Shopify, it's Shopify Plus is very service-driven. Klaviyo on their top merchants, very service-driven, right? You're like onboarding people and building these flows. I think you'll see a shift in meta strategy to continue a service-based component with onboarding a lot of these top-tier merchants and then continuing to try to go more and more organic. Where that goes from here, I think it's going to be very different to how you're seeing it in China. It's absolutely not going to look like social commerce in China for many, many reasons. I think there's a lot of white space. I'm personally very bullish on in the next three to five years, a medium change happening to augmented reality and everything becoming totally different. And I don't think there's going to be a breakout social commerce app that's a standalone app or platform in and of itself until there's a medium shift, until the form factor of actually interacting with the product changes. And that's, you know, maybe that's at a left field, but I just don't see another player coming in and being the platform there. I think it actually requires a medium shift to truly have a, a change uh, in social commerce. I, I, I love that take because I, I have a pretty similar take in the sense that the, the, the things you've seen in social commerce in China, um, they're not happening here. And I think there's like cultural barriers and things that 
and, and like infrastructure of social commerce app, you know, you have WeChat, um, which is a very different way of sort of bringing everyone together, um, a totally different social commerce experience. Um, and, you know, if, if it was truly that China is just ahead a few years, live shopping would have taken off insanely here. And like, yeah, there's some numbers to make up for it, but it's it doesn't have the rocket ship growth that we expected and predicted it would have. I mean, how many apps came out with like live shopping and, you know, even like Pinduoduo, which is this huge company in China composed of group buying and communities, um, you know, uh, neighbors in U.S. barely talk to each other. So I feel like there's this cultural um, barrier in things that um, doesn't just translate the success that we see in shopping and social commerce directly into into United States, um, the one we see in China directly into United States, as you would see in like fashion in Japan that then just comes here and things like that. Um, so that's just my hot take. <laughs> and I think a lot of that, Ramon, is on intention. It's like, why are you opening the thing that you're opening? And I think to your point in China, like that consolidation into something like a WeChat, there's a lot more intentions. You open that app for a lot more different reasons. And therefore, you're exposed to a lot more different things and you end up doing more things on there. However, here, those things are a little bit more bifurcated. It's the same way that like, you know, you look at a PayPal or a Klarna, like they have all wanted to become this place where you start shopping. And that's kind of been their big vision is like, I come here, I figure out what I'm going to buy, et cetera. But those just are not discovery platforms. And you have to have a huge shift in consumer behavior to actually become a discovery platform. And like when that intention's not there, it's really hard to convince people to start coming to your app for a different reason than they, you know, were initially coming to you for. Yeah. So, so like, you know, Anders mentioned, you know, the education part, it's likely what is driving the conversion. And this is why TikTok was able to come out of the blue and take over Instagram because there is, it is context-based and is education driven as well. The content is, you know, can be informational. Um, some of it certainly has no context at all. And the, 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 the algorithm will give you whatever it is you prefer, but it's not just like saturated with like buy this and, and this visual element that Instagram had. So what you guys are doing is combining those two and say, let's blend the education in the context of what works, but let's tap into the people that already have the distribution um, rather than us having, having to build it ourselves or the customers have to pay for it. Um, so when a customer comes to Superphilia, I want to switch gears a little bit into, um, you know, what is, who is the ideal customer that would be a successful customer with super affiliate um do i need to build my own ambassador team i'm probably thinking what is the difference between an affiliate an ambassador an influencer a creator um i'm sure you guys just hear people saying all these words and you have to take a step back and say well first define to us like what you see as a as an ambassador as a creator so um you know fitting all that into one question like what who is the ideal customer um that is prepared and ready to make super Philly a success it's it's a great and evolving question for us and i think there is this moment we always have with merchants where we have them define what those different categories mean to them and what we've seen is so many merchants are doing one of two things. They're either working with an agency for one or many of those subcategories, or they're in-housing, right? So they're saying, we have a head of influencer. We're seeing it most commonly now be a head of influencer where that person has become so important because they're also sourcing content for paid media. 
So it's not just an influencer strategy on a performance basis. It's how are we also sourcing video content that will whitelist or just push on UGC or to drive conversion on like a video experience on our page. So we do see that happening a lot where they are hiring it in-house. I think an ideal customer profile for us is $5 million plus because they have some level of brand affinity. They have some level of like traction with their audience. It can be smaller, of course. We've seen success with smaller merchants, but it's usually a, a good sign. So five million plus and growing. A product that also has like a share worthiness to it, right? Not one that's like primarily, let's just say like a, a workout sleeve, you know, that you're going to probably switch over to Amazon right away because you want it really quickly, right? Do you want something that has this like real real ethos to it and has these brand values that people want to communicate. And we mainly look for finding a champion inside the organization. I think there is always this need to find a champion of your software. If you just turn on a word of mouth program or an affiliate program and think it's going to work for you, you're you're unfortunately mistaken in the sense that it requires so much work. It requires so many touch points. You're really trying to overlap the peak moments of brand affinity with a touch point about the program, whatever program it might be. So whether that's referral, whether that's influencer, and I think the what we're really seeing on the influencer side in particular is brands are trying to work with 300 to 500 influencers a month to ultimately double down on the top 10 to 20, right? Because there's going to be a bunch that don't perform, a bunch that are just pushing the product. And what we're seeing is that the ones that you double down on, they're the ones that are really excited. They've educated their audience. Their audience has a high trust with them. A lot of these creators have kind of lost the trust of their audience and they've just been promoting a bunch of products. I actually don't think you can do that anymore if you're trying to be a successful creator and make performance-driven results happen for yourself and the brands you work with. You have to look at those as partnerships rather than a promotion. It's like, hey, I want to work with this brand over the next two years in a partnership and be able to run that. So it requires all these mindsets and uh, levers internally and externally. So how do you guys handle the the creative that goes on a page? You know, I'm, I'm asking because obviously that's, that's what we do, our trend, and, and we always push our customers to have a stacked creative pipeline. There is no such thing as just having a, a surplus library of content. Um, but in your case, given that it's tailored experience, who is in charge of filling the, the the content in a landing page? And then what are the things you're seeing that brands are doing right and, and wrong in terms of like having creative in their pipeline? Yeah, it's always on the merchant to build the scaffolding. So to build the basic version of the landing page that has this photo video content on it. Like Andy said earlier, they probably have some awesome photo video content. They've probably gotten from trend or from their influencers and creators in their, you know, kind of, kind of repos that they're they're pulling from so it's on them to build that that basic version those customers and creators can then select which of that content they want to have on their storefront and then if they want to they can upload their own content what we've seen a lot of brands do is upload the content for that customer or creator if you want to like reduce friction and say hey hey andy we've built this awesome page for you and you click on that link and all of a sudden andy as the creator sees the video he's made already on that link and doesn't have to do anything amazing you know it's just such a simpler experience they can do that on their end if they want to but we really recommend the merchant doing the majority of the work there and then making it a very like surprise and delight experience for the end uh the end creator or customer to interact with and then as new products come out Hey, here's an exclusive product we want to release through your storefront. Here's a cool pay- piece of photo video content we've gotten from our agency that we put on your storefront. And you can use it as these activation levers to uh, just really get more success out of your customers and creators. Cool. And guys, as we wrap up here, um, one thing that I'm curious about, I know we covered like funding in the beginning. You guys 
clearly raised some money, built a dope product and are like in the process of really taking things to market. So like, where do you guys stand um, at the moment as like, as we, as we talk now and like, what are some of the goals that you really have uh, for this year, whether it pertains to new brands, partnerships, products that you're, you're currently building out? Like what, what does the roadmap for this year sort of look like? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to take this from that. You know, like I mentioned earlier on that kind of like milestone based fundraising is, you know, we raised that initial slug of capital to like get a product in market, get feedback and get us to a point of like figuring out, Hey, where do we think this is going to go? You know, we've been able to drive that to like close to break even now. And now, you know, we're thinking about what's 2023 look like. And we think that that's really going like zero to one and completing a lot of parts of the organization. You know, it's, getting some marketing going. Yeah, you know, we didn't even really have a website up until December of last year. Um, we're thinking about like taking partnerships from you know, zero to one. It's Anders and I say trying to like manage those, manage merchants, manage our team, all of that. And just bringing in some people who, you know, this is what they do and bringing in some experts and helping us continue to grow and scale. And, you know, we're planning on raising some money to do that. Um, but once again, being super diligent and, you know, how much money we raise, where that money comes from, and then frankly, what we're going to do with it. Um, Durs, I'll let you go a little more on the product side and kind of your vision here for for this next year and iteration on the product. Totally. The vision is to be the front end infrastructure to the way that brands look at working with their customers and creators on the word of mouth side. And what that means is I want to be known for the best mobile video for storefronts that are on the market where people are looking at the storefronts and going, how did you build this? And instead of people saying we spent tens of thousands of dollars, they said we went to super affiliate and we dragged and dropped a couple components and it was super easy. I feel like so many of the page builders that are out there are too complex. They're allowing you to change the padding. And most marketers are like, I don't care what the padding is of this section. Tell me what performs the best, be highly opinionated on the design side and give me something that works. And that's what I really want to build for marketers. They want to build some systems for them to just simply test out a bunch of different mobile storefronts and ultimately have the ability to double down on the people that are working. That is not going to change. Like the things that are certain in the next 12 months is that brands are going to have to continue to filter through their best customers and creators to find the ones that are performing the best. And ideally where the front end infrastructure to convert their audience at the highest rate, but also to see, Hey, who is converting the best? Okay. Blaine is really crushing it for us. Like let's reach out to him. Let's talk to him. Let's enable him with X, Y, or Z. And so that's where I'm really thinking. That's where my head's at building a lot of the front end components. Um, and then I think there's going to be so many, so many things that come up as we look at how the ecosystem is changing, particularly with TikTok and Instagram being the major players. You know, we, we kind of act like it's not an oligopoly out here, but it really is. So we'll be really focused in seeing what, what they're doing and moving. Got it. And for, for our listeners, um, where can they connect with you guys? Where can they find out more about Superaffiliate or you guys, are you guys on Twitter, LinkedIn? You know, why don't you just shout out some of your socials? Totally. So you can always email us at Andy or Anders at Superaffiliate.com. It's S-U-P-E-R-F-I-L-I-A-T-E, not super affiliate, but Superaffiliate.com. And yeah, that's the main source. You can find our Twitter on there. It's just at Superaffiliate. So we're, we're usually on Twitter and LinkedIn. And then you can always email us, of course. Sweet. Well, thanks for joining us, guys. And we can't wait to uh, see how you guys continue to to grow through the rest of this year and, and onwards. So can't wait to sync back up with you guys uh, as you continue to develop the product. Amazing. Thanks so much. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. 
Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show, and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.